One of the greatest tools ever invented is the undo feature on computers. Hands down, one of the greatest inventions of the history of humanity. I can't tell you how many times I've been writing a sermon and I'll highlight something and accidentally like hit a button and like delete just sentences, large chunks, whatever, you know. And I have a bad case of, wait, what, what was it? What did I just say? Like, you know, I wrote it out and I thought I had it right and then it's gone. And, and you all, I always panic. I've done it thousands of times and I still panic. And yet, boom, undo comes in to save the day. Hours saved that could have been lost with an accidental button press or a stray mouse click. Um, and... The thing about it is, it's so wonderful, I just wish there was some magical way we could bring it into the real world. Like, I mean, how many tattoos could get uninked? How many bones could get unbroken? How many deer could get unhit? Like, if we could just have a nice little red button in life that we could just smack it anytime we needed something to get undone. Um, because the thing is about it, you know, yeah, those things I mentioned, you can remedy those to a certain extent, right? You can laser off a tattoo, bones will heal, cars can be fixed, but since you can't undo and you can only move forward, there's a cost to that stuff. There's a cost to redoing what has been destroyed through various ways of life. Um, For instance, if you've ever gotten food poisoning, chances are, I mean, the overwhelming amount of evidence shows that chances are, if you get food poisoning, you're going to get over it. You're not going to have any long-term health side effects from it, probably. But imagine if you didn't have to go through that. Imagine if at the first sign of queasiness, you could just hit a button and go backwards and not eat whatever that questionable food was. Okay, But instead, because we can only go forward, all you can do is you spend the next 24 to 38 hours of expelling, you know how it works, what directions it comes out of, right? You know all that. Instead of being able to undo it, all we can do is like pray for relief and have the bitter regret of thinking, why did I do this to myself? Why did I eat Taco Bell again or whatever it was that set you off? But you can't undo it. But imagine if you could, those dumb financial choices, that house that ended up being a money pit um, that cost um, way, way more than you thought. The purchase where it was a fun toy, but the cost of ownership was ridiculous. And there was, you know, whatever it was, gas or something that you had to put into it. And then when you tried to sell it, you couldn't get the value out of it. And so you just had to just eat it, and it was a problem for you. Um, how many relationships could we keep unbroken if we had an undo button where you could go back and instead of trying to be right, you could just say, you know what, I'm sorry. It's amazing if we could just bring this into the real world. How many times have you spent um, time in the wrong places with the wrong people, prioritized your life in the wrong way? You spent more time at work than you should have with your family, more time out with your dumb buddies. It was fun, but you should have been investing in better relationships. Well, today, we are going to look at a time when God was really trying to teach his people, almost with like a megaphone yelling at them, that mistakes can't be undone, that there's no undo button in life, and there are costs to your bad decisions. There's a a cost with poor choices, and that we need to be careful with how we live. Um, We are finishing up a series today um, 
called offerings. We have been in looking at the five offerings of Leviticus. Uh, these are five offerings that God instructed the ancient Israelites, um, kind of as they were really getting going, he gave them these five offerings to um, allow them to come into his presence, to teach them about life and sin and themselves and each other. Um, so much. He wanted them to teach them so much with these. But in order to understand any of the offerings, there is one foundational truth that we have talked about every week that you have to understand if you are going to make sense of any of these offerings. And it's this simple truth that God wants to be with you. God wants to be with us as a people. He loves humanity and he wants to be with us, but sin pulls us away from God. The story of the Bible shows us this. In the very early pages, uh, we see God um, living with people. He's with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's walking with them, talking with them. He's with them. But their rebellion, their sin, drove them away from God. God had to exile them out of this paradise, away from the garden, away from the perfection of it, and away from him because he cannot be in the presence of sin, of evil. And so Adam and Eve chose disobedience instead of a relationship with God. And from Genesis 3 onward, the entire story of the Bible is God working to restore the relationship, to fix us so that we can be brought back together with him. That's the whole story of the Bible is God trying to make it so that we can be with him and he can be with us. And in the early stages of that plan, we come to Leviticus. And what God has instructed the people of Israel to do is to build a really fancy tent. Um, it's called the tabernacle. And it was to serve as a place where God could live with his people. And it was kind of interesting how they set up the camp of Israel. They would have the tabernacle in the middle, and then there were kind of these like concentric circles, like everything centered on the presence of God. And the closer you got to the tent, the closer you were to God. And then after he had them build this tent, he had them bring these specific five offerings so that they could come near to him. And the offerings all dealt with some different level of sin or the brokenness of sin. And so that's what these five offerings are all about. And so in the first week, we looked at the burnt offering. Uh, second week was the grain offering. Then we looked at the peace offering. I heard someone call that the party offering. That's a pretty good one if you remember talking about that. Um, last week, we looked at the purification offering, which I had no realizing I never... Boy, it must have been wrong last week because I built it on last week's too. Boy, that's double. Man, that's not my day, not my week. Um, boy, that's indicative of the whole, of a lot. Yeah, there's no one, the undo didn't work for him. Maybe I did. Maybe I got it right and accidentally hit the undo button. Let's go with that. Um, and then today, though, we're going to be talking about the last and final one, the restitution offering. Um, if you look this up in, in your Bible, chances are the head, heading is going to say a guilt, the guilt offering. And that's an okay translation, I guess. Um, it's fine. But I don't think it, the name conveys what the offering is. All of the offerings are there because we're guilty. Like all of them are on some level a guilt offering. Okay? Um, but what this one is about is making restitution, is repairing the damage of sin that, ha that it has created and that you have created by choosing sin instead of obedience. And so um, what I love about this offering is that all of them are trying to teach something about this, but few of them teach as loudly and as clearly as this one. And so we're going to go ahead and read from Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus 6, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin. So just pause. I love how this is worded. This is God talking to Moses. He's like, if anybody commits this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin, or you know what? Any of the other ways that you humans have created to sin. Like, he kind of tosses in this, like, all well-round statement, okay? So if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything with which he has sworn falsely. So if he, if he wants to realize what he's done wrong and he wants to make it right, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. So there's two super clear lessons happening here. And the first one is about the damage done by sin. Um, so I love, again, it says, whatever sin you're committing, basically, of all the sins, of all the creative ways you broken humans have invented to hurt each other, whatever you do, sin is a, an incredible cost. If you take something from someone and you want to make it right, you have to give it back to them 100% plus another 20%. It's like to restore sin, there's interest on sin. If you hurt somebody, you do something, take something from them, you pay it back plus an additional 20%. You restore back what you've taken, but restoring back what you've taken is not enough to fix things. This is because there's no undo button. You can't go back and just pretend like it never happened. Moving through life, there's always a cost to your mistakes, to your sins, to your destructive choices. And you can't untell lies. You can't unsteal something. You can't unbetray somebody. You can't unlust. You can't unabuse. You, it, once you do it, the damage is done. Um, if you go ha tell a lie about somebody and spread a rumor, gossip, whatever it is, you can go back and be like, okay, I lied. That's not true. Here's the truth. Okay? But that only solves one of the problems. That just takes care of the deception that's been floating around. Telling the truth, though, it doesn't deal with all of the anger and frustration that that person had to deal with as they were like, I didn't do that. And they're trying to explain to people that they care about. I, I didn't do those things. I'm sorry. I don't know who started it. It doesn't deal with the, the hurt and the insult of, of you taking the reputation and dragging it through the mud. Sin somehow has this extra level of collateral damage. Um, you can unsteal something. Or you can't unsteal something. You can go give it back, right? But what you can't undo is, the again, the anger or the fear if it was something very costly and it was a big loss. Um, you can't undo the violation that comes with that if you went into someone's, like, personal space and took something of theirs. Uh, you, can't un you, can't do you can't just magically make that go away. And returning what you took doesn't magically make that go away. It doesn't undo the damage. You can return exactly what you've taken and still have a debt that exists between you and the other person. That's how sin works. You cannot undo 
what you have done. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, told the ancient people of Israel that if you really want to address sin, you've got to return more than what you've taken. You've got to repay more than what you've taken from the person. Because, to, uh, well, because what we do as humans is we, we, you know, we, we're, we love to justify and excuse away our own badness. Okay? That's just how we are. Okay? And so we'll go to, like, if you take something from somebody or you lie about somebody, you tell the truth, like, okay, I'm sorry, here's the real deal, I'm out, I made right, I ended what I did, sorry. But again, that doesn't quite cover it. And so we must return more than what we've taken. We like to think that our sin is more like something very precise. Um, I was talking to Abby about it the other day, and I was like, it's almost like we think our sin is like, uh, has the surgical precision of a scalpel. Like, we aim a lie at somebody or whatever it is, and we think the damage is only going to be in that one area. We're only going to hurt that person in this one way. It's like a surgeon's scalpel just cutting out the precise thing that we wanted it to. But that's not how sin works. Sin is more like a grenade. Yes, you might throw it at a particular spot, but grenades throw off all kinds of shrapnel. And there's all kinds of collateral damage, and it goes out way, way more than what you intended it to do. And so God wanted us to understand how serious sin is how nasty sin is, how messy and destructive it is, and that it is very, very costly. He wanted us to understand the consequences of our actions and the pain we inflict on others because he's so good. He knew that we would be better off if we understood that cost rather than walking through life just justifying ourselves and saying, well, I said sorry. Isn't that enough? He said, no. Damage gets done by sin. And so the first lesson we learn from this offering is that sin always does more damage than we expect. It always does more damage than we expect. And sometimes when we try to apologize to somebody, and usually what we do, again, we're bare, we, we want to do the bare minimum because we want to admit or we want to tell ourselves that what we did wasn't that bad. And then when they're still hurt after we do the bare minimum, then we get mad at them. Well, I said, so I don't know what more you want from me. It's like, well, they want more from you because they're so hurt. Because what you did was awful. It was dangerous. It was personal. It, that's what sin does. It's just this nasty, destructive force. And we love to just kind of write it off and act like it's no big deal. But think about, though, God gives this offering, these instructions, right? Imagine being living a life where you had to do this every time you hurt somebody. Imagine that every time you hurt someone, you had to go to them and be like, I'm so very sorry. Here is what I've done for you. And then you had to get out 20 extra percent. Like, let's just say you're a really pretty decent person and you only sin against one person a day. I'm probably guessing that most of us do more than that because I think we probably hurt more people than we realize some days, right? If you do only hurt one person a day, and let's say they're the, the person you hurt, um, they, they consider your offense a $50 sin. They put a number on it. So you've got so you to pay back 50 for whatever you've done plus 20%, which is 10. See, that's how you get out of doing math in a sermon. You have to give back $60 for the 50 that you've taken. And if that's only, if you do that once a day, think about how you start to feel that. You start, you start to noticing you're running out of what you have because you are walking through life, dropping these little grenades into people's lives. That, you start to feel the weight of your sin, and that starts to make you think, maybe I need to be very careful about how I live. 
Maybe I need to, I'm feeling what I'm doing to other people in a different way. It's shooting you in the wallet or the bank account, but you're feeling it in a different way. Imagine if that's what you had to do. And what is so really extra fascinating about this is what's the price of a lie? How do you pay somebody back 120%? Like it, it doesn't give us anything to work with on that. You're just left with that question. Like, do you have to go to that person and say, okay, how much was this lie worth to you? Like, do they get to just put a number on it, and then you have to give them that plus 20%? We don't know. And I don't think we're supposed to. I think we're just supposed to be left with that unease of, this is an expensive endeavor. To hurt people is an expensive endeavor. To walk through your life not caring about people, to treating other people as servants of your life or people that you can just walk through and abuse and unleash your unhealthy emotions on all, however you want, that is an expensive and damaging way to live. And God in his grace wanted us to understand that. And so as we look at this offering, yes, we're not gonna, we don't have to do this, but the lesson is still true that we can take part of. Your sin is just as damaging as their sin. We might not have a practice where every week I got to go get bring 100 rams to different, 100 different people that I've hurt, you know, and, and pay, we pay back and take all my rams in to get killed or whatever. I, and we don't have to do that. But the lesson that your sin is so costly is just as relevant to your life as it is as it was to theirs. We need to think through what we've done. And that's the first lesson of this offering. But if you paid attention, we haven't even gotten to the offering part of this offering. We haven't even gotten to the walking to the tabernacle with your animal, okay? The second to understand the second lesson in this, though, you've got to read either the first two verses that we read or the last two verses that we read. We'll read the first two. Um, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against who? The Lord, by deceiving who? His neighbor. Okay? So basically it's saying, if anyone sins against the Lord by sinning against his neighbor or matter deposit or all these other kinds of sins, okay, he's saying, that if you sin against people, you are actually sinning against God. And that's the second lesson that we need to learn from this offering. And this one's, I think, a little bit more painful, but so necessary. And it's that if you're not good with God, or you're not good with God until you're good with the people in your life, the people that you spend time with. This is why, in addition to paying the 120% of what you took, you have to also bring an offering to the tabernacle. They would also have to take, so you have to go make amends with the person and then still take this very expensive animal and have it killed for the forgiveness and atonement of their sins. Now, what we like to do in our life is we like to compartmentalize what we imagine to be sins against God in one box. We put those over here and we have the sins we commit against people and we put those in this box and we think they nary shall touch. And so the, th the sins, though, what's really funny is the sins we think we commit against God are always things like, I didn't read my Bible enough, um, I didn't volunteer for that thing, and I feel guilty that I didn't volunteer for that thing, or I fell asleep praying last night, and it's like, I mean, falling asleep on a phone call, that's so rude, how could I do that, you know, and I don't even know if that prayer counts, I didn't say amen, and I think hit, saying amen is like hitting send on an email, so that prayer might not even count, I don't even know, and so we thought, God, I'm so sorry, and we feel guilty about the sins against God. Most of the things that we say are sins against God are just our own personal guilt for things we think we should have done. But then we have the ways that we sin against people, the lies we tell, the anger we unleash, the rude comments, the, 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 the bitterness, the lack of generosity, all of that. And we think, I can do all that stuff, and that goes in this person box, but this box doesn't affect me and God. 
this, that's, that's the other people and I can deal with them. But I can, I can have a full box of sin for, against people over here. And I can still, you know, come to church and talk to God and pray and go through a whole service and sing my songs and have a little tear come to my eye because it was meaningful. And I listen to the sermon and I can walk out thinking, boy, that was encouraging and I feel spiritually refreshed. But the thing that God's telling us in this offering is there's not two different boxes. You can't sin against people and have it not affect your relationship with God. You can't just be a person who walks through life as a bulldozer to other people and expect you and God to be okay and expect God to be okay with your behavior. If you do something that breaks God's desired order of the world, that's a sin against him. I get it, Harper. I had the hiccups so bad last night. Does anybody else get, like, the big, deep, like, you can't hide them, loud ones? I mean, I'm always like, you know, and they, like, like I feel like my chest's going to cave in, and, and Abby starts laughing at me, and I'm like, it's not funny, it hurts, you know, and I get so mad, can't talk, get it. Anyway, sorry, for those of you watching online, you had no idea that someone was hiccuping, that's good, um, that's fine. Um, anyway, but the idea here is that when we walk through our our world, that God had an intended way that he wants his world to operate, okay? He wants his world to be a place uh, where there's love and selflessness and joy and kindness and peace. And when we sin against other people, we are working against the current of those things. We are working against the order that God wanted to have in his world. We are uh, being selfishly, uh, selfish as we hurt people and abuse people and use people. And we're breaking the way he wants his world to function. And so that's not just a sin against the people in our lives. It's a sin against God himself. And when you sin against one of God's children, he considers that an offense to him. And so if you aren't at peace with the people in your life, you aren't at peace with God. That should frighten us a little bit. Because um, this is something that I think American Christians have totally forgotten. I think this is a truth that we have just totally forgotten. Um, I think it's also, though, one of like the most basic things that we should learn when we become a Christian. I think it's like kindergarten-level beginner basics of faith. It's like the tying your shoes of the Christian faith, that you have to understand that what you do to other people affects your relationship with God. And so this idea that you can sin against God, again, we've largely forgotten it in our country. And so we have people, you can watch it, this is really common online, but there's people who will, in the same post, self-identify as Christ, a Christian, and then tell someone else to go blank themselves in one, one little nice paragraph. And you're like, I'm not the smartest guy, but that doesn't feel right to me. Like, that's, I, I, I remember like early on in my, when I was just kind of starting to explore Christianity and stuff, I was spending time with people. Uh, who started to do this kind of stuff, who were like, I can do this over here, and God just doesn't either know about it or doesn't care about it. And I just start, I mean, even like as a, a junior high kid who was just barely getting into faith, started to be like, that doesn't seem okay. Like, sure, surely God would be upset by this kind of behavior, right? And so we have acted, though, like we can just, you know, do whatever. And so this is why for decades, if you talk to anybody who's ever worked in a restaurant, they will say the worst time to work is Sunday lunch crowd because we all sit in churches all across our country and we listen to sermons about loving our neighbor and serving people and being peaceful and kind and when we drive 15 minutes to a restaurant and we treat somebody like dirt and we abuse them and we're bitter to them and we're demanding of them and then we don't tip. And it's like, well, hey, we're pretty awful people, but at least we're cheap, 
Like, it's like there's, like, there's, we just, like, take the name of Jesus, and we just run it into the ground as hard as we can, and then when we can't get it any farther, we're like, eh, maybe I can give it one more hit and not leave a tip. Like, it's so crazy to me. This has just become the, 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 uh, what's the word, Uh, reputation of Christians in our nation. Like, how has that become a thing? Like that, again, you can't mistreat people and think God's just going to turn a blind eye to it. That is not how things work. And if you spend any amount of time reading through the Gospels, what you will notice about Jesus is that he talks about how you treat people constantly. The verse that um, Becky read for us earlier says, what's the two most important commands? You love God, yeah, but right on its heels is you better love your neighbor as yourself. You love them the way you want to be treated and cared for. And we have to understand Jesus said these ridiculous things like loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. Ooh, who wants to do that? Why would I want to love and and serve and make peace and treat somebody who hates me? Why would I want to treat them well? He says, because how you treat people matters between you and your heavenly father. That we are supposed to love all people regardless of how they behave towards us because how you treat people matters. How you love people matters. And so you can't ignore bad behavior, rude behavior, sinful behavior, crude behavior, and come to church, sing your heart out, listen to a sermon, and leave thinking God's cool with all of that. That's hypocrisy. It's two, two faces for the price of one, and God can see through that. And I think, you know, do you know how many people the average American is not okay with? Do you know how many broken relationships litter the lives of the average American? Because we have been taught in our country, the way you deal with conflict is to say, I don't need you anyway. Door slam. You're gone. And because they're out of our life and because we can walk away from it, no more problem. But that's brokenness. And just so you know, when someone hurts you, 90% of the time, we hurt back. That's just how we're sinful creatures, living with other sinful creatures. And so most of the time when there's conflict, it's not one-sided like we tell ourselves it is. It's a, it's a two-way street of sin and brokenness. That's how that works. And, and so we have this idea of, like, I'll just forget you and shut the door. And we do this with romantic relationships, friendships, uh, old coworkers, family members. We shut the door on this kind of stuff. And because we think we're right, we use that as an excuse saying, you're wrong, I'm right, you're horrible, I'm the good person. I don't need this anymore. But yet, if you've sinned against somebody and you've never sought forgiveness, you've never tried to make peace with it, then it's entirely possible that your relationship with God is not as good as you think it is. Like that, maybe you came to church this morning and woke up and you thought, I don't don't think I'm going to get hit with the two by four when I come to church this morning. Like, that's how I felt like I've been enjoying this offering series, and then I'm studying it this week, and I'm like, man, this is like wrecking me. Like, this is really impossible, hard stuff because it's, it's foundational-level Christianity that we've ignored. It's basic stuff that we've just kind of written off, and we've gone the way of our culture. And Jesus made it very clear on the Sermon on the Mount that before you come to God and expect to work on this relationship, we need to work on the relationships we have with other people. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus said this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So these people might be standing in line with all of the other hundreds of Israelites bringing their offerings, getting that untrained dumb animal, walking through this line, being bored, right? And it says, you might be right up to the front of the line. You might be right next to the altar. You might be the next one to go. And if you right there, you remember that you've hurt somebody and they've got something against you, you step out of line. And you leave your animal and you say, okay, I can't offer this until I go repair that relationship. That You can't bring an offering to God. You can't come and expect to have contact with your heavenly father when you have unresolved chaos and sin with others in your life. That's, there's scary implications for that. And how we approach God. But we, again, we don't connect hurting other people and the sin and the chaos that we've brought in our life with our relationship with God. We just don't even connect the two. And we really should. And so if you bring an offering to God and you realize you've sinned, you stop right there, you get out of line. And they probably didn't have savesies all these thousands of years ago. It was probably, I guess I'm going to start over at the end of the line again. Um, But you can't be made right with God until you're made right with people. And I wanted to just stop right there and just to let that hang because my fear is because of how we are and because we like to give ourselves any out, any trap door to escape calling ourselves sinners, I was afraid if I tried to lessen this a little bit that our natural responses would kick in and we'd say, oh, good, Anthony gave us a yeah, but to get out of this. But I also realized that there are some people who are going to take this so to heart that if I don't soften this even a little bit, you're going to walk home and be wrecked and think you're never going to be with Jesus ever because you're going to think, oh, no, God's going to kill me under the weight of my own sin. You're going to be too much into it. Um, So let me say this. We're always going to have conflict in our lives. We're not going to be able to resolve it all. Broken people, broken world with other broken people. And you can go to somebody that you've wronged and that you have conflict with, and you can try your hardest to mend that. And you can apologize. You can try to make it right. You can say, I forgive you what you've done. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing here anymore. It's, we're good. You can do all of that stuff. And they can still be like, you know what? I don't care. Get out of here. There's nothing you can do there. You tried. And the important difference here is that you tried to bring peace. You tried to bring the relationship into right standing between you and them and between you and your Heavenly Father. And so... um, But if you just kind of walk through life and writing off people that disagree with you and say, I said what I said, and you can deal with it, and you just kind of hurt people and and leave that unresolved mess in your wake, or they hurt me and I don't have to deal with that because they're wrong. If you're just having that attitude, that is not okay. That is a sinful attitude. God does not want us to be bringers of chaos, to be grenade throwers just ruining people's life and moving on our merry way. And he wants us to know that that is not okay, and he knows it. And it's not okay between us and him if it's not okay between us and the people in our lives. And so if you've sinned against someone and you have a broken relationship and you want to make peace, and they don't want to make peace, I'm sorry that that happened. But it should still bother you that things aren't the way God wants them to be. That should still bother you. So... As we close out this series, I think this is a powerful place to stop, though, because these incredibly ancient offerings that most of us honestly skip over and have skipped over lots of times reading through, or maybe you skimmed it just to say, I read that. Yeah, I did it. I can check that off my little Bible reading plan. Sure, but you don't stop, and we don't meditate on it. We don't think about it. We don't let it sit in. These things have such incredibly profound things to teach us and things that are very relevant to how we live today, and they're so convicting. It's so, 
oh, it's so convicting what we learn about sin and what we learn about ourselves and our relationship with God. And we need to understand that our sin is more damaging than we think. And we need to understand that God loves every single human being so much that when you sin against them, he takes offense to it. And honestly, we should understand that. I mean, that's how everybody responds if you try to, like, hurt their kid, right? If you try to hurt one of your kids, you're going to get riled about it. Like, one of the weirdest things in life, it's so surreal, is that I, I have seen some of the most meek, quiet people turn into the Hulk when somebody wanted to hurt their kid. I mean, they stood up and were ready to throw hands because somebody tried to do their kid wrong. I mean, all of us have that, like, don't you dare hurt my baby. Like, that just comes out of us. And God is the same way. And if you try to hurt the people he loves, he's not just going to let that slide. So if you haven't taken seriously the command to love your neighbor and love your enemy, thinking that you could just skip some of that stuff and be fine with God, I would heavily encourage you to reconsider and start thinking about how you live your life because your choices have consequences. They have consequences between you and other people, and they have consequences between how good you are with your Heavenly Father. And it's time to start valuing other people the way God values them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this really tough lesson. As I was working on this, Father, I knew it was hard, but every fiber in my being knew that it was needed. I needed to hear this. I needed to be reminded of how much you love other people and how my relationships with others affects my relationship with you. And so I pray that you would give me clarity to start looking at the world in a way that I haven't. We have this desire to think that we can hurt people sometimes and write it off and just kind of out of sight, out of mind with certain problems and things and, and just carry on with our life and, and think we can just leave that little bit of chaos off to the side and everything can carry on normal but um, you want us to be people who live in peace or at least are trying our hardest to live in peace and so help us to be peacemakers who do the hard work of trying to make peace of owning our sin of trying to make it right of understanding that sin has an extra cost and so instead of doing the bare minimum to get out of it we go over and above to restore the relationship and help us to have a um, an understanding that how we are with others is um, can affect how we are with you. Uh, and I pray, Father, that as I preach a one sermon and I can't address every situation and there is some messy sin in the, in the lives of us in this room, that you would help us to have um, the ability to understand how it can uh, apply to our lives because um, some people are going to tend to take this too hard and walk out of here overly overwhelmed with grief and some of us are going to take this um, too lightly and think we're just going to carry on our merry way. Um, so I pray that you would help through your Holy Spirit to have this lesson um, land in our hearts the way it needs to land so that we aren't buried with grief, but we're actually seeing the hope um, of your gospel, the hope of restoration, the hope of peace, the hope of a day when chaos and upheaval and relational distress is all gone, and we live at peace with you and with the people you've given us to live with. Thank you again for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.